Welcome to CISO's Insiders Podcast, powered by GRC Consulting. In this podcast, we'll be interviewing leading CISOs and security leaders in the industry for light, eye-level conversations. Here, they share advice and tips, talk about their biggest accomplishments and failures, favorite drinks, key influencers, and much more. We encourage you to walk away with at least one insight that will help you better yourself or your business. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you enjoyed today's episode. For more content, please check us out on social media. Welcome, everybody. Good morning. Uh, today, I'm speaking with Ross Leo. Uh, Ross is based out of Houston, Texas, I believe. And, you know, your impressive re um, resume goes back a while, and I see you've spent a bunch of years in NASA, both of uh, as an employee and maybe a contractor after that. Uh, and... You know, I see a lot of uh, positions along the way here uh, in the cybersecurity space, IT security, as a consultant, as a chief privacy officer, as a vice president and CTO, chief systems and security architect, uh, director of cybersecurity, and a couple of positions as a chief information security officer. If I'm not mistaken, your uh, current role uh, that you hold is uh, as a CISO with a company called Galen Data. If you can step in, introduce yourself, uh, that would be excellent. Well, so far you've done a pretty good job. Um, the, thing that, the thing that I've done is I've just been in the profession and I've been around so long that I keep having to find new things to do. And that's why the resume looks like it does, but it's, <laughs> it's, been, a, it's, been, a long, it's been a long run in cybersecurity, that's for sure. Got it. Um, thank you. And typically, before we get started, you know, just as a means of getting to know you better, I like to ask a couple of icebreaker questions here. Uh, if you're willing to share your marital status and your favorite drink. Well, my my marital status is married to uh, a Greek native. And um, she's here with me in Houston. My favorite drink is a Negroni, which is... Um, Probably not all that common. It's it's a combination of gin, sweet vermouth, and Campari, or another form of Campari like Cinzano or a bitters of some kind. But it's um, it's got kind of a bite, but it's a refreshing sort of drink. And with this hot weather, I alternate between that and gin and tonics. Okay, thank you. Um, uh, I know the name. I don't. I'm not sure if I tasted it or not. It sounds Italian. I'm not sure if that's correct or not. It is, uh, and you probably haven't had one because it's got a very distinctive flavor. You'd you'd remember it. Yeah, I, I think I can imagine the flavor. I might have tasted it, but I'm not sure. Um, well, now you've got something new to try. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think, as I mentioned in our preliminary call, the the purpose of this past of this podcast is to learn more about you and your journey. It's less about learning about your company or your previous positions. It's more about the the past and specifically about the role of the CISO. Uh, mm -hmm. And with that, uh, I have like a prescripted list of questions that I usually follow. We uh, sometimes we go off script a bit, but let's get started and see where this discussion takes us. Uh, mm -hmm. If just one thing you wish you had known before you began your career, what would that be? Well, when I get asked this question, because my career, as you mentioned, has been a long one, it wasn't actually the one I had intended to start on. And so 
the one thing I suppose I wish I had known before I'd started on it was what I was actually going to end up doing. I'd actually wanted to be a public health officer working for the U.S. Navy, but as I tell people, the universe sometimes has a different idea about what you should be doing than you do. And the universe being a little bigger than me uh, usually wins those tug of wars. So what ended up happening was uh, a sidestep in a career I was already starting on took me to work in access control. And it just kind of mushroomed from there. But I suppose what I really wish I had been able to plan my educational pathway to be better in alignment with where I actually ended up. That I suppose is probably the one thing I really wish I, I had known in advance before I started. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I can imagine. And, you know, education, I think it's, it's always, uh, you know, a difficult not to crack because, um, you're supposed to know what you want to do for the rest of your life at the age of, uh, like here in the U.S., it's probably 18, 19, right? And then if you, if you go down a certain path and then, you know, you figure out, hey, this is not actually what I wanted to be doing. This is not my passion. Then uh, you take a kind of a detour. So, uh, yeah, it's always oh, yeah. hard. Had, had, had a few of those. That's <laughs> What, uh, like in your long and impressive career, what would you, uh, you know, perceive as your biggest failure and what did you learn from it? Well, I had been working in the profession for probably about a dozen years or so. This is back in the late 80s. And there was so much interest where I was working. I was working as an employee at NASA at the time. By employee, I mean a contractor employee. I was never actually a civil servant. But it seemed to me that there was so much interest. And I come from a long line of entrepreneurs, so I thought I'd try my hand. Well, I did not do a very good job of doing my homework and doing some market research and that sort of thing. So I decided I was going to try it as an independent consultant because I wasn't 100% sure I wanted to stay uh, an employee forever. Well, that did not work out so well. I just learned from that that timing, like in comedy, timing in business can be the most important thing. And my timing was off and my market research was even worse than that. So I would regard that kind of thing as probably my worst failure, a failure to do my homework and really get informed about where I thought I wanted to go before I took the step off that high ledge and fall. But it was a part-time thing, so I didn't suffer as badly as I could have, but I still could have done a lot better job at that. Got it. Thank you. And do you think um, do you think you had aspirations to be an entrepreneur, and that experience basically put the lid on that? Well, I wasn't sure if I wanted to be an entrepreneur or not. I never wanted to be the kind of well, the stereotypical salesman that everybody associates with used car sales. And that was kind of how I always pictured being a salesman would be, which just shows how naive I really was. I didn't really think through that I would have to sell myself as a product the whole time. I thought my talent and my expertise and my glowing personality would do the job, I guess. So again, I didn't really think it through very carefully. Um, but coming from a long line of an entre entrepreneurs, I thought I'd give it a shot. So yeah. It really kind of put me off that 
pretty much all together. And yet now for the past 20 years, that's exactly what I've been. So it's kind of come full circle, but I did learn my lessons, fortunately. Understood. Thank you for that, for that sharing of experience. And uh, speaking of your perceived failure, what would you say your biggest accomplishment was? Well, interestingly enough, my biggest accomplishment, I feel, was as an employee. When I left NASA, I had been recruited to go to the University of Texas, the medical branch campus in Galveston, Texas. And they had a project that they were working on, but had not really made the kind of progress they wanted. And the gentleman that recruited me thought that I had the experience from NASA that would help the project succeed. To make a long story short, what we did was we took existing technology, combined it, and we built out a telemedicine system. And this was very different than what we know as telemedicine today in the wake of COVID. It was a full diagnostic station that we designed, that I engineered together with various components that were almost brand new to the marketplace at that time. And what we ended up with was tying together 126 locations spread around the state, all the way from Houston and Galveston to Dalhart, which is about the biggest distance across the state. And in bringing this system together, we tied those locations together in a secure network. By the time we were done, I had built a data center, put in all the computers, all the video, the full-time, real-time video, voice, and data, so that a doctor sitting in Galveston could diagnose the patient for just about anything except surgery. Our data center, our computer could handle up to 350,000 patient records, and we were doing 4,000 of these calls, meaning that a doctor was interviewing a patient somewhere else in the state. This is for the Texas Department of Criminal Justice, all the prison locations in the state. But he could interview a patient located as much as 800 miles away from him in real time for just about everything imaginable except performing surgery. And we were doing about 4,000 calls of this kind at the time. This was 2002 to 2006, at a time when other organizations doing 11 calls per month was, to their minds, a record breaker. So it was much more successful than I had imagined. And we did it in about, now well, about two and a half to three years, we got the whole thing rolled out. And I'm, it's something I've been very, very proud of all this time. I had a great team. And they did an amazing job still doing it, in fact. Well, that sounds impressive. And that was, uh, you mentioned 2002 to 2006, I think. That yeah. was even before, uh, I mean, we had high-speed internet, but not as, as good as we have right now. So uh, I imagine mm -hmm. you had, like, uh, inherent uh, difficulties there and challenges with setting this up, like in means of communication. And because you mentioned, like, video as well, right? That's right. Well, well on, to answer your question, it was not the high-speed access that we know now, but it was a completely wired. Those those who are listening may remember a line that we called a T1 line at that point. We talked about 10, yeah. 10 meg and 100 meg right now, but this was a 1.544 megabit line. But fortunately, we owned all of the bandwidth, so we didn't have to compete. But yes. It was a very different time then. 
Yeah, yeah, I remember the times with the T1 and dedicated lines and all that. So mm-hmm. understood. Okay, thank you. Uh, interesting and impressive. Um, and again, looking at your career and it has been bountiful and very diverse, what advice would you give to someone wanting to pursue a career similar to yours? Well, the thing that has driven me all this time has been probably an undiscovered passion for this kind of thing. I never realized early in my career that this is something that really seemed to excite me. And it's done it throughout my entire career, finding a problem of this type, finding a solution, finding a way to bring competing things together. These were all things that have kind of mixed together to make this very rewarding. As I mentioned, this wasn't the path I had chosen, but it has certainly been a rewarding one. And what I would recommend to anybody wanting to do something like this is you have to have a passion for this, I think. And it's not about being geared towards a law and order or a very rigid sort of mindset. It's wanting to solve a certain kind of problem that cybersecurity today presents. And it's, as we know, it's a very widespread, multifaceted, sometimes very difficult problem. If you want to pursue a career like this, I think you need to have that kind of a mindset, not a passion for equipment and software, but a passion for really solving what I've come to regard as some very, very serious and very important problems that we face as a society today, not just in America, but worldwide. So having that as kind of a basis, but always remembering the context in which it works, a government, a business, a healthcare institution, or some other kind of an organization. These are things that a person who excels in cybersecurity has to bring together. And I think it can be extremely rewarding to to do this. But that's the kind of thing I would recommend for someone to consider about themselves if this is a career they want to choose. Yeah, but basically you're saying they need, I mean, an individual needs to find their passion. Of course. And and you Always. can't really, yeah, and you can't really understand you ha- if you have a passion for that before you actually try it, right? And you, and this, like, space is so vast, right, right mm-hmm. now with cybersecurity, you can go any number of ways and, mm-hmm. like, develop a full-scale career. Um, like, and, you know, if I'm just, like, a young listener out there and I'm just trying to wrap my, hand, my head around, like, cybersecurity and what it means, mm-hmm. like, where do I start even to see if I have a passion for that, in your opinion? Well, I'll tell you what. When, when I look back on my own career and think about stuff like this, the thing that I had planned was something that I did have a passion for. But the thing that I had for cybersecurity wasn't really something that was awake until I actually got thrown into it and had some problems to solve. The the thing that you have to do is you have to find yourself drawn to something like this. All the things that we read in the news, and this is one of the things that I that I find uh, youngsters, because I, I teach at the University of Houston part-time. And one of the things that I find about it is they think that it's all the hot and sexy stuff about tracking down hackers and getting involved in cybercrime and all this kind of stuff. And the fact is, a lot of it really isn't like that. And it's easy to get caught up in that. And unfortunately, that'll disillusion people. It has to be the kind of thing that you're drawn to, I think. And there really isn't a better way for me to describe this. The students that I've had 
they felt like this was something that was important, not just fulfilling, not just a paycheck, but something that was actually really important to do. You might even say they felt like they wanted to be a crime-fighting superhero. I've had a few students that were like that. And there are those aspects to it. But just like Picasso had to be drawn by a fiery passion for painting and artwork of various types, it's kind of the way that I feel about what I do. I feel like I'm doing something that really matters, that really means something. And I think this is one of, well, several or even many career paths that can really give a person a sense of fulfillment for working in an area that really matters, not just to a local area, but planet-wide. You can have an effect that way. But it's not something that you want to go after seeking rock star status. That tends to work against you because now it's like more for fame than it is for actually doing something that matters. So it's, it's hard to describe beyond that, but that's, that's kind of how I look at it. And I think a person just needs to really examine themselves and see if that's how they feel about it. It can be very mundane a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Great insights. Thank you for that. Um, switching uh, gears here, I just I wanted to discuss a different uh, type of topic. As you know, you know the Caesar role has been evolving for the past probably decade or even more than that. I will touch more about that. But my first question uh, in that topic, around that topic, is like. We still we're still seeing a lot of Caesar that are part of the IT organizations in, in mm. you know in within a few, within some organizations. What do you feel about uh, you know placing the Caesar role as part of the IT? Well, I have a general idea that organizations that want CISOs don't really know exactly what a CISO ought to be doing. In other words, they haven't really investigated what they what their expectations are of the role. I think some organizations bring them on because it's a good thing for public relations. They bring them on because the board of directors says, we need somebody who's in charge of this so that we can put a good face out and show that we really take cybersecurity seriously. So I think there are a lot of motivations, but my general perception is unless a company or enterprise of any kind really knows what they want to see so to accomplish, and if we're going to talk about that, that role is a lot more diverse than you might think, in my experience at least. They really have to have a clear idea of what they really expect this person to do, what kind of a background they really need to be able to do the job in light of what they expect them to do. Some think they need to be very technical, and that oftentimes is what gets that person stuck into IT which in my experience limits what they're able to truly accomplish to benefit the enterprise. I think because it comes from an IT background much of the time, not all the time, and I think that that's happening less often these days, but still quite a bit. I think that's why the organization tends to plant them in the IT department rather than somewhere else. But in my experience, that limits the reach and effect and vision that a CISO probably ought to have if they're really going to benefit the organization the way that the organization actually needs. So I don't think that's the best place, but I don't necessarily think that there's a one-size-fits-all to this, that there's a one place that they really should be put. 
So not really, you're, in other words, you're saying in some cases, a CISO, I mean, this arrangement could work if a CISO is under an IT organization, although you're you're not one of the like uh, biggest advocate for that specific structure. If that's what I'm, that's what I'm getting from you. That's that's accurate. See, mm -hmm. we've always called it information security. It started out being called computer security because it was about protecting the computers, which were a very high value asset at first. So we wanted to protect that. Then it was called data security because we wanted to protect the information that was in it along with the hardware and the data center and all that. But for the past, well, a couple of decades, we've been calling it information security. Well, information exists in a lot of different forms throughout an enterprise. And if you really expect to protect information, which is truly gotten to be the most valuable asset almost any enterprise has got, CISO, who has that built into the very name of his position or her position, I should be, I should be more politically uh, correct about that. Well, women make every bit as good a CISO as men. I should, I should acknowledge that. Anyhow, but if you're going to protect this information, you need broader vision than simply being stuck in the IT department because it limits the way that you come into contact with it because it doesn't exist just in the computer, it exists everywhere. Human information, human capital, information that's floating around that hasn't been codified and put in a computer, it's all over the place. And if a CISO is really expected to protect all these different forms, the IT department tends to be a pigeonhole and tends to really limit what they do. But I think it all begins yep. with the executive suite knowing or the board of directors that whole uh, group of people, they need to know what they really want them to do and then fashion a job and a position and a location in the org chart where they can accomplish that. Yeah, I I totally agree with you on that. And, you know, I think personally the CISO position, it really depends on the the, the space that, are, that you're in. For example, mm -hmm. like, you know, if you're Agreed. in the movie industry, like I know that uh, as, as a TPN assessor myself, I know that uh, some requirements that they have in the local regulations there is to monitor social media channels, just to make sure that, mm -hmm. you know, data doesn't leak before the air date or, you know, doesn't, uh, that they, they have a lot of controls around other aspects very far removed from IT and even development. Mm -hmm. So uh, I totally agree that the CISO is much more business-oriented role, especially these days. And, you know, uh, putting it under an IT organization somewhat limits, potentially would limit this role um, in, in some organization at least. Well, I think, I think the comment that you made just now, the business organization, I think that's really sort of the key element. It's about the business and the information of the business. IT basically looks at one form of it. But to your point, being focused on the business itself and knowing what the business values means that you're broader. It means that you have a wider range of concerns and issues and you need to have a broader reach for it. So it is about the business because the information is about the business, not just the bits and bytes in a computer. So I very much agree with you. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you. Um, moving on, uh, just trying to keep on schedule here. So, mm -hmm. uh, you know, looking at uh, your bio again, and as I mentioned, it's very diverse. 
where did you learn? Like, what were the best resources? Did you, you know, learn this in college? Did you take like uh, specific courses? Was it on the job training, a combination? Well, to be, to be honest with you, I took all the necessary courses of computer science, but there wasn't really a cybersecurity course back in the ancient days of pole burning cars and that sort of thing when I was in college. There yeah. wasn't any cybersecurity really to learn. I studied systems analysis mostly. Most of what I've learned, I've learned by doing. Job on, on the job training, hands-on, making a lot of mistakes and hoping to learn from them. That was really where I learned all of what I know. And I've had some good mentors along the way who, according to them, they learned it very much the same way. Um, a lot of my colleagues learned it in the military, coming from classified systems and that sort of thing. But that tends to be somewhat limited in the facets that it deals with, too. So the sources that I've actually picked up most of what I know from have been the general official sources like the FBI, the NSA, and, and others, but not exclusively. The industry, over the last decade or two, has really developed a lot of very high-quality resources, and I've been making a lot of use of those. Sometimes... You can do a lot of open source intelligence just by reading the paper. Every day I get a dump on my computer's desktop about what's going on in the hacker world or in the, leg the legislation world. Those can be very useful also because they can tell you what's happening, who's getting sued for what, where breaches have been. And you learn about how those things happen, how to take them apart, and hopefully how to prevent them. So it's been from a wide variety of sources that, that I've picked this up. But as far as skill goes, it's mostly been learned by doing. Definitely, I agree with you that, you know, uh, uh, really learning is from, like, learning really how to do something is by doing it and obviously mm -hmm. failing along the way, uh, I'm assuming, small failures, hopefully. Uh, yep. But if there's one common myth about this profession that you wanted to debunk, what would that be? Oh, gosh, there's probably, there's probably a couple of them. Um let me give that a thought for a second. I think I think one of the things that I would want to debunk is that it goes back to what you were saying about having a CISO in the IT, IT department. I think I, I think I've mentioned that that's probably not, in my opinion, the best place to put them. And I think that the myth, which I still hear occasionally about a CISO being in the IT department or reporting to auditing still associated with IT, I think that shows that management is not making the best use of the CISO, but it's still a common perception from what I hear. I also think that, I think, and this is one of the ones that both handicaps the business and the CISO, and that is the perception on the part of the business people or the legal people, but the non-IT, non-technical people, that a security program in general should be near perfect in its performance. And I want to debunk that simply by saying that's going to be almost impossible to do because the people that we're defending these systems against can know everything that we know about our systems, not ours in particular, but they can get a copy of any software, any system that we can get. It's hard to make something perfect when you have a constantly moving intelligent target like the hacker that we always fight against or just the system problems that we create for ourselves, 
that's a myth that I think really hampers how effective the program can be based on the perception of the folks on the business side, as well as the limitations on the technology side. If there was any myth I would want to have removed entirely, it's that a program like this needs to be perfect. I think part of the job of a CISO is to manage expectations for who he serves and make sure that everything is going as well as it possibly can, but making sure that you understand that it's not something that's going to run itself perfectly and it needs people with brains, with good eyes and good ears and good uh, analytical skills to keep track of it. It's got to stay in constant adjustment, constant evolution because of the moving and intelligent targets that we're after. So that's the one I really wish we could get rid of. Yeah. And I would even, uh, you know, expand that and claim that I don't think any other business units or, uh, you know, line of service, like business lines within a company perform mm -hmm. perfectly. So obviously like my everybody would have been, you know, is the operation department, like, is that, you know, functioning perfectly is sales marketing, uh, it, all the time. Yeah, yeah, all the time. You you can't really do anything perfect. The but thing, uh, yeah. to, to to kind of to kind of jump on that for a second, there is something different about the perception that people have about cybersecurity, those who aren't in it, I mean, that for some reason it should be perfect. What you said about the other business departments, absolutely true. We we mess up in accounting, we mess up in marketing, we mess up in those things all the time. But this is one where we're talking about security, and I think people just have this natural tendency to want to believe that a security program of any kind is going to be a perfect barrier against whatever evil forces it's battling <laughs> against. And I think that that's unfortunate. And I think sometimes that we in security and cybersecurity, we, we kind of give strength and force to that myth. And I think we need to be careful. We don't want people to think that it's not going to work, that it's not going to be perfect because, well, we have job security to worry about too, to be to be perfectly frank. And so we want them to think that it's going to be very good, but that sometimes gets out of hand. But you're absolutely right. These other areas, they have all of their own faults and imperfections, but for some reason, people hold us to a higher standard and we need to find a way to manage that a little better so that everything can be more effective and be seen in a proper context. Got it. Thank you for that. Um, let's talk a bit about uh, the industry and trends as a whole, if that's okay. Um, just trying to pick your brains on a couple topics here. Uh, in your opinion, what are the main concerns that CISOs nowadays have, and where should they, you know, focus their time on? Well. My colleagues and I, when we get together and, and have one of those high-level powwows, the, the constant theme that I'm hearing is breaches, penetrations, identity theft, meaning they have stolen, the adversaries have stolen information. I think one of the main drivers behind that is there is a lot of legal consequence that happens when those kinds of adverse events occur. And CISOs are very worried that their business is going to get penetrated. It's something I hear all the time. They worry about their programs being adequate, detection, reaction, correction, all that kind of stuff. That is very much on their mind. And there is so much of it, or at least the news presents 
that there's an awful lot of it. And what we hear about is these big events where the Russians are doing this and North Koreans are doing that. I think that what we're worried about is that these things are going to prove not only to be the technical disasters that they oftentimes come out to be, but they're also going to be damaging to reputation of business, reputation of the CISO, you know, the common, the common accusation, well, you had to have been asleep, otherwise we would have caught this and this wouldn't have happened. And that's not really a fair perception because we still struggle with manpower, we struggle with budgets, we struggle with all those things. But even if we had all the time and money under the sun, we still wouldn't come up with a perfect program that would catch everything. But this is the kind of thing that I hear from them a lot. And the bottom line is you can, you, you can only do what you can do. If a company or a government agency isn't willing to fund everything that they need, and that's an entirely different subject altogether, how much is enough? What's the right level? We have to make do with what we have. We have to be sure that we're flexible and adaptable. And this makes for a very complicated landscape for CISOs. And it's what they worry about. What am I missing? What am I not seeing? What's the danger that's out there lurking, waiting to smack my company and really do some damage? That's, that's what I hear very, very frequently. In fact, I don't know that I hear anything more frequently or even at all from some sources than that. And as a follow-up question, in your opinion, what are the most important skills that CISO should have to be adequate enough to, uh, to deal with all those, all those threats and risks that you mentioned? Well, what they have to be able to do, I think, first, is they have to understand what the real business priorities are. They don't work for themselves. They work in service to the enterprise, to the board, to the executive. And many of them, depending upon the kind of company that they're in, the kind of organization, there's a public that they have to serve as well. And this is sometimes lost when, you know, all of this stuff is going on. I think the first thing that they need to do is really understand what the organization is that they work for, who they serve, what they do, et cetera. Really understand the business. Because that's gonna do a lot to outline what the real priorities are going to be. They need to be able to set up ways to manage that, to gather intelligence about what's going on with that, attacks, probes coming in from the outside. But along with that, they have to be able to understand who they serve and how to manage their expectations. I think one of the most important things is they're gonna be the bearer of bad news. And I think the CISO needs to accept the fact that on occasion, they're gonna to have to do that. And they're gonna to have to understand their audience so that they can do it straightforwardly, without hesitation to manage those expectations by being plain spoken about it. Folks, this is what's going on is the kind of thing that I have in my mind when I say this. Good news can be presented anytime, but the bad news has got to be presented the right way at the right time to the right people if you want to get their understanding and their action to help you solve the problem. But you're going to have to have all of your feelers out there gathering your intelligence, doing your monitoring, and staying attuned to what's happening in your own environment to make sure that to the extent that you can, you get a jump on what's going on and you can respond quickly. I had a boss once tell me, I want you to bring me bad news 
and I want you to bring me problems, but I'd like you to have thought about it thoroughly enough that you've got an answer and a solution along with that, or at least a, a suggestion for one. I think a CISO has got to keep that in mind as well, because if you go to your boss with a problem and you look to your boss to solve the problem for you, eventually he's going to think you're a problem and he's going to solve it by getting rid of you. <laughs> well, correct. It just, it just highlights the point I'm making. You've got to have a sense of what's going on, what the problem is, and how to solve it when you take it to a superior, because that's what their expectation is going to be. And it all comes from knowing who you work for and what their priorities are, because those are the ones you have to work with. Mm -hmm. Okay. And as someone who's been in the industry for a minute or two, and you've seen, you know, this role of the CISO, and you mentioned information security, data security, information security, cybersecurity, you've seen the transitions, you've seen the CISO role growing, expanding. What do you think will come next? Where is this role going in terms of maturity and growth? Well, I've often looked at this as the same kind of thing that happened with accountants early on, doctors early on. It's going to be evolving. And I think one of the biggest things that I'm going to see is companies are really going to begin to see that a CISO can be and should be a key player. I think we still have some evolution before we get to that point. And I think CISOs themselves, the senior people that we look to, I think we have to look to them to do some professional evolution too, to understand if it's really a place that they want to be. I've talked to CISOs who would really rather be working with technology. They want to do that. That's why they got into the profession. But somehow they landed in a CISO role. There's nothing wrong with knowing that you want to play with hardware and software because we certainly need skilled people doing that. But a CISO is a role that takes you away from that, or should because you have to focus on the business. These are all parts of the evolution I see. I'll share an anecdote with you. Colleagues of mine, people that you have heard of, we were talking about this kind of a role, not called a CISO, but we were talking about this kind of a role back in the middle 80s at the Johnson Space Center here where I spent 22 years. And it's been a creeping evolution and I'm very pleased to see that over the past decade plus, that the role has actually come into existence. But it still needs to evolve further to where it really is seen as a peer to the other executives, the other board members, the senior people that sit around that mahogany table. And that's going to require the evolution for both the company and the person that I've spoken of. I think we have probably another 10 years plus to see that, and I always hate making predictions like that because time always proves me wrong. Maybe it'll come faster, but it's a progression. But I, that's where I see it going. And I think that companies and the individuals are going to benefit better when that happens. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you. Um, I know we're almost out of time and you have a hard stop. So let me just ask you a couple more questions before we wrap this up for today. Um, just a just wanted to discuss briefly about vendors. Uh, in your opinion, like what should vendors stop doing? Well, I'll be, I'll be blunt. They need to stop trying to sell me something. And what I mean is the vendors that I have experienced 
have run the gamut from good listeners to far better talkers. What I need from a vendor is I need information about their product and I need them to tell me plainly. If I ask you about your competitor's product, tell me how your stack's up against it. Don't sell me stuff, tell me facts. I think many of the salespeople I've spoken with, not all, but many, they're busy trying to sell me something and they're not really hearing me. They're not really listening to the problem I'm trying to solve. You see, I'm a buyer, I'm not a shopper. And I think a lot of my peers are buyers rather than shoppers. We're smart enough to know what our problems are and the kind of products that we need. And we need vendors to just talk to us. First, listen to what we're telling you and then talk to us about how their product will work. I have a great deal of respect and have given business to people who said, you know, I understand your problem, but I, I don't have a product that's going to solve that. So I'm going to stop wasting your time. We shake hands, we part company. Those are the kinds that I call back and say, you know, I've got a little something else that we, can, can we talk about this? And I've done business with people that walk away from the first one because they didn't have something for me. I respect that kind of integrity. And I think a lot of my peers do as well. But mostly what I expect from a vendor is, listen to what I'm telling you. Stop thinking about what you're gonna say and just hear me. And then let's talk about what the problem is and see if your solution actually addresses it. That's gonna be a lot more successful with me and people like me than constantly trying to sell me something. Because I, I won't put up with the pressure. I'll hang up on them. Mm -hmm. Okay. Thank you. I think it's very clear. Uh, you made your thoughts very clear here. Thank you for that. Uh, I think it's very, uh, I mean, honestly, I think it's uh, it's good insight. Uh, and I don't, I, let, me, let me just add this. I don't blame the salespeople at all for doing what they do. It's what, it's what their employers expect. But I just feel that they would be much more successful if they did a lot more listening. When I get clients, I don't do marketing but I've got about a 95% closure rate in all the clients that I do have. And that's the philosophy that I've got. And it works for me that well. And that's why I feel that many of the salespeople in cybersecurity would do better perhaps by adopting something that starts out with listening, like the old thing, seek first to understand, then to be understood. That carries a lot of weight with me because it means they're talking about something that they've learned something about by listening to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I just, you know, personally, I think the system is set up in such a way that, um, you know, everybody wants to scale up. You, oh, I agree. Yeah, if you're a startup company, so you have this amount of million, millions of dollars uh, that you need to invest in marketing and sales, mm -hmm. and you need to show results. So it's very simple, you know, the way I it totally works. I totally agree with you. Yeah. Um, let's... So a couple questions to wrap this up. Uh, anyone you wanted to name drop in terms of uh, yeah, people that you look up to, influencers? Well, there are two. I have, uh, they are both former bosses of mine, both at NASA. One is Hal Tipton. He was my boss there as a contractor for many years. He was the one who really sort of cemented me going after a CISSP, and this is in the days when CISSP wasn't even, the ink on it wasn't even dry. He forced me to go through it. I say forced, I mean gently. He strongly encouraged me to do it. And then he recruited me to help him build ISP Squared when ISP Squared was five people. 
and that was back around 1997, 1996, that time frame. He was a real pioneer and he was very dedicated and he really had a very strong sense of doing a very necessary and oftentimes thankless thing. And he did a lot to inspire me. I also had another boss that I was working for about the same time, a gentleman by the name of Rich Owens. He's another one who inspired me in much the same way. He was, he came off as kind of a cavalier guy, but I've rarely met a person who is a sharper tool than this man. And he's still practicing. And um, they both serve to be very, very powerful mentors. I don't, I don't idolize people because that's not fair to them. And it's not fair to me because humans inevitably disappoint us because, well, we're flawed characters. But these two stand out head and shoulders above just about everybody else for the influence that they had on me during those, well, formative years in my profession. So. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you. Uh, what's the best way to connect with you online? I'm there on LinkedIn. I, I am perfectly happy to connect with almost anybody. Uh, so anybody can find me there if they just look for Ross A. Leo on LinkedIn. And I'll be happy to check it out and connect that's Thank the you. easiest way sounds good uh and for final question if money was never an issue what would you do with your life well that's always a tough question because i really enjoy what i do but i think if i had unlimited funds i think what i'd do is i'd find a nice cozy place i'd set up a cigar bar and i would put up a cybersecurity practice adjoining to that so that I could enjoy my stogies while I was doing my work because I can't do that today. I have, I have a family and I have a home and got to keep the cigar smell out. But I think that would be fun to continue the way that I want to keep doing what I do. So that's the only thing I can figure. Okay. Uh, thank you so much, Ross, uh, for taking the time and joining me today. I really enjoyed our talk. Looking forward to connecting with you in the future. Any party notes that you wanted to uh, say out here? No, I I was very pleased to be able to do this with you. This has been a lot of fun. I just yeah. hope that I've been able to say something and help somebody out there. Definitely. I'm sure your insights would resonate. Uh, yeah, thank you again. And looking forward to meeting you in person at one point. Hopefully that'll happen soon. Thank you.